Good morning. Please turn with me to 1 Timothy. This morning we're going to be looking at verse 15, but to get the context we'll read all of chapter 1, and before we read, let's pray together. Father, we know that all flesh is as grass, and its glory as the flower of the field. That by your breath you could wither all of humanity. For all the nations are as nothing before you. They are but a drop from a bucket as dust on scales. But we know that your word abides forever. And it is to your word that we turn. So may you deal bountifully with us. That we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your law. We long to see your glory clearly in the face of your Son. We long to know the wonder of what you've done for us so that our souls would bless you more and more. So grant us grace by your Spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus 
came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So as I said this morning, our focus is going to be on verse 15, where Paul says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. We read the whole chapter just to get the context. And if you have the ESV as I do, you can see how verses 3 through 11 is titled Warnings Against False Teachers. Because there Paul is reminding Timothy how he had instructed him about what his job was. How he was to remain at Ephesus to rebuke those who were teaching things that were not in accordance with the gospel. They were, as you can see in verses 8 through 11, they were misusing the law. And he says how the law is good. There's value in the law because it reveals our sin. It reveals those things that are contrary to the gospel. And Paul says that is the gospel with which he had been entrusted. That then transitions him into explaining how he came to be entrusted with this gospel. How was it that Paul, who had been so hostile to the gospel, so opposed to Christ, so vehemently seeking to persecute his people, how did he come to be entrusted with the gospel? And what does he say? Does he say, well, you know, God just saw that there was something in me, despite all that was going on, that he noticed that there was something in me, and because of that, he chose me. No, he doesn't. What does he say? He says that it was a result of mercy. It was not as a result of anything in him. In fact, it was in spite of everything in him. God chose Paul. God used Paul. Christ appointed Paul to be an apostle because of mercy. And he did that for what reason? He says it in verse 16, that he received this mercy so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So why did Christ choose Paul? Why did Christ use Paul? So that when people would look at Paul, they would say, if If Jesus can use him, if Jesus can save him, then he is able to save and use anyone. Because if he could use the foremost sinner, then he is able to use and save any sinner. How is that possible? It is possible because of what we are going to be looking at this morning. That the very reason why Christ came into the world was for this purpose. 
to save sinners. And notice how in verse 15 he says what Christ did. What did Christ do? He came into the world. He says why he did it. He came into the world to save sinners. And then he also shows how we are to respond to this. That we're not just to leave this truth out there, but instead we must seek to apply it. We must acknowledge that we are among that group. So Paul declares what? That he was the foremost sinner. So we'll see what Jesus did, we'll see why he did it, and then we'll see how we should respond to it. So the first thing is that Christ came into the world. This word world can simply mean the physical creation, or it can also mean this evil, sinful order that's opposed to God. And both of those things could certain we could understand this verse in that way. We could understand it as Christ came into the world, simply meaning that he physically came into the world, or we could understand it, as we see in other verses, that he came into the darkness of this world. He came so that he might be a light in the darkness. But both of those things make clear that this statement depends upon Jesus actually physically, historically coming into the world. Though it might seem obvious, this trustworthy saying cannot be a trustworthy saying unless Jesus actually came. And the reason why we need to point that out is because it is common today to say that Jesus's, the, the historicity of Jesus coming, Jesus being a real person who actually lived on this world, earth, actually died, actually rose, that that doesn't really matter. That what matters is simply your personal, subjective encounter with Jesus. What matters is you just seeking to imitate his way of life, you just seeking to love as he loved, you just seeking to experience the hope that he gives. But we cannot have this subjective, experiential encounter with Jesus unless there is the objective, historical reality of who Jesus is. That the the truthfulness of this statement, the trustworthiness of this statement, depends upon Jesus actually coming into the world. And so the question becomes, is there actually any reason to think that that happened? And one... If you were to get a book on apologetics, you could look at all, these, all the reasons why it's rational to believe that that actually happened, that Jesus really was a, a real person who came. But one of the clearest indications of that is the fact that the New Testament is a reliable historical document. Though it's certainly more than that, and though we often don't think about it in that way because it is the very Word of God, that if you were to just look at the New Testament from a purely... Uh, what would you call it, purely human standpoint, if you were to just examine it as a historian, you would see that this book is a reliable document, that it actually conveys true history. And what does this book claim about itself? It doesn't claim that there was this group of men who just went out into the desert and all of a sudden had some good feelings and they wrote down some good thoughts. No, it claims to be eyewitness testimony to the life of Christ, to the work of Christ. And one example of that is in Luke chapter 1. 
So you can either turn there or write it down. But Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, just listen how Luke records this and what he is claiming this gospel is. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. What is Luke saying? He says, I have examined it. I've, I've researched. I've looked at all the, the eyewitness accounts of the life of Christ. And I've compiled them together in this document. And I'm giving them to you for what purpose? So that you would have certainty concerning what you've been told. Saying, Theophilus, you've heard all these things. People have told these things to you. And I'm giving you this document so that you would have certainty that all those things you have been told are true. He's not saying, Theophilus, you know, you just got to have faith. And what I mean by faith is you just have to take a blind, irrational leap in the dark that all these things are so. No, he's saying, Theophilus, use your mind. Reason. Examine. Look at it. This, this book is, is eyewitness testimony to Christ. And so when we hear that Jesus came into the world... We need to know that it is a, a historical claim and that we can have certainty concerning that claim. We can have certainty to the claim that Jesus actually physically came into this world. Now, what did he come to do? Going back now to 1 Timothy. What did Jesus come to do? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So Paul doesn't say that Jesus just came to give some good teachings. He didn't just come to give an example. He didn't just come to love on people. No, what did Jesus come to do? This verse is so clear. And it, hopefully you walk out here having, if you didn't know it before, you walked out knowing this verse. Because it's, it's, it's a short, clear statement about what the gospel is. Christ Jesus came to do what? He came to save sinners. We can see that fact by his name and his title. Paul says Christ Jesus. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one of God. From Isaiah 53, we see that this anointed servant of God does what? What would happen to him? He would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. Upon him would be the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We also see it by his name. For when the angel appeared to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, why? What did he say to Joseph? Why was he to be called Jesus? Because he would save his people from their sins. So we see Jesus came to save sinners by his, his title, his name, but we also see it by explicit statements. We see it 
in the statement here. 1 John 4, 14 says, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Why did the Father send the Son? To save the world. You may be here today uh, as someone like my grandfather who would say, you know what, that's just, that's just Paul, that's just the apostles, that's, and that's different than Jesus. That's how he would understand things, that there's the Jesus version of things, and then there's the apostle and the apostles' versions of things. But Jesus himself made this clear. Jesus himself declared that the reason why he came was to save a few examples, Luke 19.10, Jesus says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Or Mark 2.17, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So why did Jesus come into the world? Jesus came into the world to save Sinners. What, though, are we being saved from? If you know R.C. Sproul, he wrote a book called Saved From What? Because to be saved implies that we're in danger. To be ransomed, to be rescued, implies that we're in, in bondage. And clearly Jesus is saying, what, this group is lost. So what is it? What, what do we need to be saved from? And the answer is that we need to be saved from the wrath of God. That God's wrath, His anger, His just judgment upon sin, all of us are in danger of that. Because every single one of us is a sinner. Unless we think this is a a light reality, just listen to one description of what such wrath looks like. From Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. This is actually an easy one to, to find if you have a Bible. And it's always good to. I like uh, people say how we're to be students of the Bible and just that picture we're to be, have our eyes here, looking at it, studying it. So it's good to turn there to check everything out. So Revelation chapter 6, we'll read verses 12 through 17. John records, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? 
So picture that. All of creation being utterly uprooted. And though the most powerful, the most influential, the most confident people on this earth doing what? Cowering in utter terror because of the wrath of God on that day. When we are sitting here or we're just living our lives, it's so easy to lose sight of that. Like Peter describes in in 2 Peter, people are saying, where's the promise of His coming? You know, you keep saying that God's judgment is coming, but ever since the beginning, it's just going on. There's no, no big deal. Sure, there's things that happen, but this whole talk of wrath, where, where is that? But then we see this, and it, by God's grace, will jolt us and make us aware of what is coming, of that of which we're in danger as sinners. As sinners, we are in danger of the wrath of God. And that is not a light topic. It is something that will strike terror into every single person. And the reason why we are in danger of that, as we have already seen, is because we're sinners. And this reality of us being sinners is not something that we... uh, It's something that we don't develop because of our environment or because of how we're, we're raised. It's something that we have by nature as humanity. And how fitting the questions in the children's catechism. I saw in the bulletin that what effect did the sin of Adam have on all mankind? All mankind is born into a state of sin and misery. So by conception, this is who we are. We are both condemned and we are corrupted. We are under the just judgment of God and we have this sinful inclination within us. As the second one says, what do we inherit from Adam as a result of his original sin? A sinful nature. So by nature... From conception, we are under God's just judgment. And then because of our nature, we're inclined to sin. We are only able to sin. We heap up for ourselves additional judgment, additional wrath. And what does that sin look like? The last question, sin is any transgression of the law of God. So because of that, what is happening is God's judgment is upon us. From the moment we begin to exist, we are under God's just judgment. And so we are in danger of His wrath. And this is true no matter where we go in the world. Just thinking about that, if you were to go on the other side of the world, you would know that the people you meet there, this would be true of them, that they are sinners who are under the wrath of God. You would also know, though, that what? No matter where you go in the world... There is only one way to be saved. There is a way to be saved, and there is only one way to be saved. Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So you can know all people are sinners, and yet there is a way to be saved, and only one way to be saved. Now, this picture is not very popular in our culture. 
And it's been so throughout history. Just looking at, if you look at the Old Testament, you, you read the prophets, they didn't have any better reception to this message than we do. People rejected them, opposed them, sought to, to stop their message. And it's the same way today. But despite that, despite all of the hostility, all of the opposition to this message, God continues to mercifully warn people of His coming, of this coming judgment, as well as proclaim to people this good news that there is hope in Christ to be delivered from it. He does that. He does it through His people, through His Word. And while according to our culture, this picture of humanity is very bleak and pessimistic, the exact opposite is actually the case. What does the culture say, in general, our problems come from where? Our problems come from outside of us, and it's something that's done to us. So we are the helpless victims of our environment, of our physiology, of our biology, And that's where all of our problems come from. But if we are the helpless victims, how is that in any way hopeful for us? In one sense, it's nice because what? We're off the hook. Our problems are not us, it's something else. Something that was done to us, that that is our great problem. Or it's our environment or our circumstances, that that's that's why we are who we are. But by contrast, what does... What is what's true about us? What's true is that what is our greatest problem? Ourself. That you, me, we are our great problem. And the great problem is that we are sinners. But that message is actually hopeful because of what we see here in Timothy, is that Christ came to save such people. So, yes, on the one hand, it's hard because it means that we are actually the problem. Why do we get angry? It's not because of the things around us. They are revealing what is in our heart. Our circumstances are pressures that push on our heart and it squirts out whatever is in there. So why, when you get married, does it seem like all of your patience, all of your kindness, all of all of the goodness that you had as a single person is gone? Is it this woman? No, it's this person that you are. Same thing that happens with kids. Is Again, God is revealing, this is who you are. Those things are not causing you to be this way. Those things are revealing what is actually there. But the great hopefulness of that is that then, no matter what circumstances we may be in, no matter how difficult of a trial we may be facing, our problems do not have to continue. Because Christ came to save sinners. We are the great problem, but He is the one who delivers us. And how does He do that? How does He bring about this salvation? So Christ came to save sinners. How does He save us? Well, if you look in... 1 Timothy, just over in chapter 2, in verses 5 and 6, he's describing in chapter 2 how he wants Timothy to pray for all these kinds of people. 
And in verses 5 and 6, he says, Why? For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So how did Jesus save us? He saved us because he was our ransom. He was the price that was given so that we could go free. So the way he saves us is being our substitute. A substitute not of mere example, but a substitute of, uh, that bears the punishment. A penal substitution. One who takes the punishment that we deserve on our behalf. So we deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath. But Jesus drank that cup for us. We should have been crucified on the cross, but He was pierced for us. We should have been cursed, but He was cursed for us. The Father made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The great picture of this is, if you think about Barabbas. So here was this man that had committed these horrible sins, and he's standing next to a a perfect man. And Pilate asks the crowd, who should I release for you? Should I release Barabbas, or should I release Jesus? We don't know what Barabbas was thinking, but hopefully you would be thinking, he's thinking, there's no way they're going to say they should release me. Pilate didn't think that they would say that. And yet, what do the crowds cry out? They cry out for Jesus to be crucified. And that continues and continues until Pilate finally gives in to their requests. And so then Jesus walks that road to be crucified, and Barabbas is set free. Now, if you picture yourself as Barabbas, imagine that. Here is Jesus, the one who is perfect in every way, and us who we are so acquainted with our sin. And what happens? We hear the crowds cry out for Jesus to be crucified. He then walks that road and goes to the cross. And imagine then you journeying down that road and seeing Him upon the cross and thinking what? That should have been me. I should have been on that cross. I'm the one who deserves to die. Not Him. He didn't do anything. That is the, the, the reality of what Christ did for us. That like Barabbas, we should have been condemned to death and gone to the cross. But we are released and Jesus is crucified on our behalf. And why was He crucified? Not merely so that we could be forgiven and then sent on our way, but so that we could be brought near, so that we could be brought into God's presence. First Peter... 3.18 summarizes this where he says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. So why did Jesus suffer? He suffered on our behalf. For what purpose? So that we might be brought to God. Not so that we could merely be forgiven and sent on our way, but so that we could be brought near. And I love Psalm 65, which says, Blessed are those whom you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. 
it is a blessing to be chosen by God to come and dwell in His house. Because there is where we find true satisfaction. There is where we find true joy. Again, in this regard, you could think about Mephibosheth. If you remember Mephibosheth, it's hard to forget that name. It's like Jehoshaphat. But Mephibosheth was uh, Saul's grandson. He was Jonathan's son. And what happened with Mephibosheth is he could have rightly been killed by David because here was his enemy's grandson. But what did David do for Mephibosheth for the sake of Jonathan is he brought him into his house and allowed him to eat at his table. So here this man should have been David's enemy, could have rightly been killed, and yet he is brought into the king's house to eat at his table. That is what the Lord does for us. We are His enemies. We were those who were hostile toward Him. And what does He do? But He brings us into His house to feast at His table. And as a a family, we'll just sing songs every once in a while, well, quite often. And we love in this regard the song, Thank You, Jesus. I don't know if you guys know it by Sovereign Grace. But it says, Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath is satisfied, and not merely are we sent away, but we are brought into His, ta- into his presence to eat with Him at His table, which is what we get to do today as well. The Lord's Supper, Jesus' feast, a picture and a, a hope of us looking forward to that day. So what did Jesus do? He came into this world. Why did He do it? To save sinners. Now last is how should we respond to this? Because we can know that statement, we can argue the truthfulness of that statement, and yet not in any way benefit from it. The demons know that Christ came into the world to save sinners. They know very clearly penal substitution. But they are in no way saved. So in the same way, we can be a person who knows this truth, who argues for this truth, and yet not benefit from it. And so we must not leave it out out away from us, but we must recognize how we fit into it. And which is what Paul does, right? He doesn't just say Christ came into the world to save sinners and then leave it at that, but he says what? Of whom I am the foremost. Paul recognized who he was, that he was a sinner. And not merely a sinner, he says he was the foremost sinner. Also what he says, he says at the beginning of verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It's a a statement that we are to receive. It's a statement that we are to believe. And so, 
if you're here today, how, how does this statement apply to us? If you're here today, of course you're here today. But how, how, does it, how do we see how we fit into this? It's the recognition that we are sinners. We are not basically good people. We are people who are corrupted. We are totally depraved. We are wholly corrupted in every way. And so if you're here and thinking, you know what? I'm a basically good person. I try my best and I know that God will reward me in the end. You need to recognize what? No, He will not. That you are a sinner who has transgressed His law and so He will justly condemn you to hell apart from Christ. Also, if you're here and just just love to argue about this, realize that that does not necessarily mean that you are saved. Just knowing the truth, just, just arguing for it, no, it is something that we must accept, something that we must receive. So we close by thinking about this parable that Jesus told in Luke 18. He described how there was a man, a Pharisee, who trusted in himself that he was righteous and treated others with contempt. And there was also a tax collector. The Pharisee described what? How wonderful he was. That God, I thank you I'm not like these other people, these sinners. I do all these wonderful things. By contrast, what did the tax collector do? He simply cried out to God for mercy. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so on that day, when you stand before the throne of God, what will you say? Will you, like the tax collector, say, God, I thank you that I'm not like those other people. I thank you that I knew the truthfulness of that, that I could argue for it like no one else. Or you may say, God, I thank you that I was a basically good person. I tried my best. Or will we, by God's grace, having come to recognize this statement, having come to accept it, say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That we would acknowledge, God, I am a great sinner who in no way deserves to be accepted by you. But I know that Jesus is a great Savior. And though my sins are many, His mercy is more. So I look to Christ I acknowledge that I'm a great sinner, but that He is a great Savior. And for those of us who acknowledge that, we declare, as Paul declared at at the end of this section, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your great mercy and your grace. We know that if you were to count iniquities, that no one could stand. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That because of your great love, you sent your only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Thank you that we have that hope that one day we will dwell with you forever and ever, that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, 
that even now we can rest in the fact that there is no condemnation for us, that we have eternal life, that we have been reconciled to you, that your wrath no longer remains on us, but we have perfect fellowship with you and your Son. Oh, may we see the wonder of this. May we see the fact of of the wrath that is coming so that we would urgently plead with those around us who do not know you, and then we would abound with joy and thanksgiving because of the salvation you've given to us. Grant us grace by your Spirit, we ask. Amen.